0: The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Did you know that we've built more microgrids in the U.S. than anyone else? These self-contained electrical networks allow you to generate your own electricity on-site and use it when you need it most. Keep your power on during a grid outage. Store electricity and sell it back during peak demand times. Integrate with renewables such as wind and solar. With a microgrid, you get energy control on your terms. See what's possible at www.se.com. Backslash US backslash microgrid.
1: It's absolutely certain that the era of a uh, one size fits all in shipping when it comes to fuel that that's over. It'll be really interesting, and I think that those companies that are able to deal with that complexity will also be be the winners because it will be more complex, no doubt about it.
0: This is the interchange recharged. I'm David Miller. The race to decarbonize is well underway. Every day I see new initiatives and technologies which could solve some of the biggest challenges we face in getting to net zero. It's a learning curve for me, but I'm all in and I hope you are too. So join me as I navigate through the world of clean technology and together we can learn something new on every episode of the podcast. We talk a lot about hydrogen on this podcast as a viable option for power and for powering engines, as we've discovered talking to Zero Avia a few weeks ago. But can it power the mammoth ships that transport our freight across the globe? About 90% of the world's trade is transported by sea, and the cost to the environment is enormous. On this episode, I talked to Jacob Sterling. He's the head of ocean decarbonization and innovation at Maersk, one of the largest global shipping companies. Mersk is on a mission to sail towards climate neutrality by 2040, and unlike other companies in the field of transportation, they plan on using methanol to get there. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So Maersk, uh one of the largest, if not the largest shipping company globally, what are you all doing to kind of further the energy transition? What types of initiatives are you enacting?
1: Well, first of all, this started with us setting some, some targets some years back, uh, back in 2018, uh, we decided that we uh, we wanted to go for, for climate neutrality in 2050. And that actually sparked a lot of uh, work on looking into what fuels could actually help us make that energy transition, which actually then again led to that we earlier this year could announce that we would cut 10 years off our our own deadline. So we want to decarbonize our entire business by 2040. So yeah, you're right. We're looking at a pretty pretty steep acceleration uh, ahead of us for our energy transition in Maersk.
0: And you guys are looking at methanol fuel, uh, correct? What, what, what factored into your decision to pursue that technology versus others?
1: Hmm. We, we have looked at many different technologies, many different fuel technologies, but also uh, things like batteries, for example. And, and it's very clear that if you want to have impact in this decade, which we do, I mean, we intend to halve our carbon intensity in this decade for our shipping operation then we need to go for for fuels that can be scaled now and which uh, has a good scaling potential and where some of the key technologies are ready. And if you take a fuel like methanol, uh, it is actually being used for ships today. Uh, There is a small fleet of methanol tankers in the world that has a methanol engine and use part of the cargo to propel the ships. And also we can see that there are mature technologies to produce green methanol. And mark my words, because I said they are mature technologies, because there is no scale. Uh, but uh, we felt that if we would take the first step in actually ordering a ship that would run on green methanol, that then that could also lead to the uh, investments, unlock the investments in actually green fuel, green methanol production. And the thing with methanol is that it's fairly easy to handle compared to some of the other alternatives, such as hydrogen or ammonia, because it is it is a liquid at room temperature. Uh, and it is uh, it is not toxic to the marine environment and and for human beings, it's only really toxic if you if you drink it. Uh, and that is not something we intend to do on the ships. so we we should be good on on, on that account. So uh, the production of the fuel can be done both from from bio sources and from uh, renewable electricity. So also from a feedstock perspective, uh, when we want to scale the production of this fuel, then it's a little bit more flexible than some of the others, which makes us believe that we can scale fast and that we can get to to really significant volumes.
0: And so, a little bit further on, choosing that fuel versus, say, hydrogen. Yes, uh, we've talked a lot on this podcast on hydrogen. So, what were some of the other factors that came into the decision as you as you looked at it compared specifically to that?
1: So, so hydrogen is a is a great feedstock for methanol first and foremost. Uh, so that's how it 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 fits into that equation. We've also looked at hydrogen, and the problem with hydrogen from a shipping perspective is that while it is, is quite light, it takes up a lot of space. On a big cargo ship, you want to use the space to carry containers in our in our case. So if you had really big hydrogen tanks, then you would be able to carry less cargo, and that would be a real issue. It's also very difficult to, to handle ammonia overall, but it's mostly the space issue that, that is a problem. Hydrogen, uh, or green hydrogen, is made from renewable electricity through electrolysis. Uh, we use that as a feedstock to produce uh, methanol by adding a, a CO2 molecule, essentially. You can also add a nitrogen molecule, then you get to ammonia, which we also think has a, has a future uh, as a shipping fuel, but it's just not ready yet. But hydrogen is a fantastic feedstock, and so we do need a lot of scale in, uh, in electrolyzers and electrolyzer capacity in the world to enable that, we can also make green methanol.
0: And how far along are you on the deployment uh, of the methanol-powered ships?
1: Well, we took a decision uh, one and a half year ago uh, to order the first container ship. And that ship will, uh, will, uh, will be launched next year, around this time, actually, so pretty much a year from now. So that will be the first uh, methanol-fueled container ship. We have then also ordered additional 12 uh, much larger uh, container ships and they will start entering our fleet in 2024, and we will have all 12 uh, by mid-2025. Uh, so at this point, we have ordered uh, 13 ships. Uh, the first one uh, is 175 meters long, and it's a fairly small ship that will, will trade regionally in Northern Europe, whereas the, the other ones are, are more, more, more than 350 meters long, and uh, will be trading uh, intercontinental. So, so you know, large scale uh, standard container ships for for the long hauls, right? So, um, the real challenge that we have right now is, of course, uh, we need the fuel, um, and that is, you can say, the other part of the equation, because uh, because the ships will be built and delivered, that's for sure. Uh, but as I said in the beginning, there is no uh, methanol fuel, uh, green methanol fuel, ready today. So we are we are now in the process of entering. Uh, a series of partnerships with uh, with methanol fuel producers or potential methanol fuel producers because none of them are p- producing yet uh, that can supply the green methanol needed for these ships.
0: From the supply side, uh, let's move forward and assume you get the contracts or the partnerships with the methanol producers. What type of infrastructure do you think needs to be built out to help supply those ships on a consistent basis?
1: Th- that's a good question, and it's... Um, it's it's one of the the challenges that we have because we are we are first movers in this space as i said there's today a small fleet of methanol uh, tankers that use their cargo as fuel which means they don't they don't need any fueling infrastructure so so when we come with our first ship and then the next 12 those will be the first ones that need uh, fueling infrastructure for 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 shipping so we will uh, we will need to, to spearhead that and for the first Feeder vessel, as it's called, the first uh, small container ship. We are quite far in in figuring out how we want to do that because we know where the production of the fuel will happen. It will happen in in, in Denmark, in Southern Jutland, and from there we need to then set up this specific infrastructure for this one ship to uh, to get the fuel on board from this production facility. It sounds simple, but it's actually relatively complex because you need slightly different tanks and you need slightly different. Uh, uh, fuel barges uh, to do the job because methanol is an alcohol and it's different from the diesel that we normally use so you cannot use exactly the same equipment so we're getting some important learnings from from the first ship and then we will need to to utilize those for the next ones but it is actually a little bit hard to get started in a big way because at this point in time it is not fully decided where we will deploy these uh, ships these 12 ships and we don't know exactly where the fuel is going to come from. We have some good ideas, but nothing is confirmed. So, so we have a lot of moving parts that we need to to uh, to keep an eye on and 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 need to make sure move forward, but but there's no doubt that in the first, I would say at least 5 years of uh, of, of of using methanol as a fuel for shipping, the infrastructure will be a challenging uh, element and something that will probably also be quite costly because uh, we will need to convince Operators of barges that are that can do uh, methanol to come along and and fuel our ships even in a location where there might not be any other customers at that point in time.
0: So from a cost standpoint, how do you see methanol comparing to the current diesel that's being used?
1: Sure, I mean, and if we if we start at the ship itself, because we are when we when we design a ship for for methanol and it's actually a dual fuel ship that can run on methanol and diesel. Then you need some slightly more expensive equipment, some uh, more advanced fuel tanks and fuel systems and so forth. That is a premium of around 10 maybe 15% uh, on top of what a standard vessel would cost. And I would say that is manageable. Basically, that CapEx premium is, you can say, an insurance premium that we buy to have the optionality that we can use both alcohols and diesel type fuels in these ships. They make them very flexible for the future. The very expensive part is the fuel. As it is today, there's only the global production of uh, green methanol is around 30,000 tons per year. So that's the global production. None of that goes into fuel. For the first ship, we will need around 10,000 tons per year. Uh, We will get that from from Denmark, where where supply is being built up. But for the next 12 ships, uh, the big container ships that I mentioned, we will need close to half a million tons of fuel per year, compared to global production of 30,000 tons. So what we are in the process of doing is essentially building a completely new green methanol fuel industry. That is what needs to happen. So we engage in deep partnerships with potential suppliers and and you can say to, to convince them to see that this is a really good idea. They need long offtake agreements so that they, have, they can make their, their products bankable and they can start building the facilities and so forth. That's very different from how we work with fuels today, where it's a fully commoditized market where we can get the fuel, uh, the, the diesel that we need, more or less anywhere. Instead, we will end up in a situation where we will have production in certain locations where they produce exclusively for us. And back to your question, because it was a long detour, wasn't it? The, the cost of these fuels. We, did, we cannot say that with certainty, um, but it would be two to three times more expensive than, uh, than regular fuels. And, and here I'm using a baseline for fuels of around $500 per tonne. So it's going to be a lot more expensive compared to what we've been used to. We expect to see a cost out over the decade for green methanol, but it will start relatively high. Uh, and, and that is quite typical for new technologies, actually. Uh, to, and, and then we get going and then we can move down the cost curve, so to say.
0: Yeah, it's really nice to, I mean, a company the size of Maersk to get that production infrastructure built out and to have that counterpart, that long-term contracts in place really helps from the financing aspect. And so, when the financing companies, the banks see that in place, it's really going to facilitate getting that capital to build that infrastructure with Mersby and on the the other side of the contract. In terms of the customers, what have you seen in their willingness to pay somewhat of a premium for the green shipping option?
1: And and it's it's a it's a good question you bring up here because that is, of course, the other side of the equation in this. Because as as I explained before. We will take on additional costs uh, that we, you can say, take on voluntarily because this is not something we do because of regulation. It is something we do to, to reach the targets that we have set for ourselves. In 2019, uh, we began to pilot a, a new product in our portfolio where our customers could choose to, to have their uh, their goods moved uh, carbon neutral. And, uh, and this we did by using uh, biodiesel in our fleet. And it is basically, you know, the setup is the same as what you have in, with green electricity. So the customer could buy freight from, say, Shanghai to Los Angeles, let's say 10 containers, uh, and they would then ch- could then choose to that they want to have these containers uh, uh, carbon neutral. We would then calculate what fuel we need to burn, uh, of standard fuel, to carry these containers. And then we would use an equivalent amount of biodiesel somewhere in our network, not necessarily on that ship but but in our network somewhere on, on on designated ships. And that has actually allowed us to offer a global carbon neutral product from a point of view well, from a point where there was actually quite low volumes and that is offered at a premium. We have seen a very exponential uptake in this product over the past uh, two, three years. So there's massive interest from customers. It is still small percentage points that we are compared to the, the total volume that we are selling. And it's also concentrated in, you can say, specific uh, sectors. But it is quite interesting because it's, it's the first time where we see customers are actually willing to pay for for green shipping. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, praise before, but this was the first time we we sort of tested can will that praise from customer actually can that turn into to a willingness to pay. And now it does, and it makes us quite confident that that this can also be scalable from a commercial point of view because. If we, uh, on the one hand, make long-term commitments to, uh, to potential fuel suppliers, and on the other hand, also see a growing uh, interest to buy a green products from our customer, then this can actually uh, turn out to be uh, not only good for the planet, but also quite good for business.
0: And, and that's really good because it shows how the individuals can make an impact because there's a global effort for the energy transition. And there's much more of a focus, not, for, not only from customers, but from financiers as well, to focus on green initiatives. And so it doesn't surprise me, you saying that that customers are willing to pay a little bit more of a premium to support that effort at all.
1: I think in the beginning, we saw primarily demand from business to consumer brands that already had a quite, you can say strong sustainability profile. It could be retail, it could be electronics, it could be automotive, it could be fashion. The ones that where we are used to see that they have an interest in sustainability but what is surprising us now is that we also see see demand for this product from from other sectors, like the petrochemical sector in the Middle East, or beef exporters from Brazil, or uh, or, or business to business in in China, just to to mention a few examples. And that's really encouraging, and it actually surprises us a bit. But I think it's the basic fact that our product is a product that is on the shelf that you can actually choose to buy. And if you, you pay the money, then you will get uh, real reductions in your supply chain. Whereas for many companies, it might be a lot harder to actually get started by going into to changing the emission footprint of, of a production facility or, or something else that is more complex than basically going into the shipping supermarket and choosing the green product.
0: Yeah, there's a lot more focus on scope one, two, and three emissions. Mm. It's not just the manufacturer of a product. Uh, it's everything that goes into that product and how truly green is it when the consumer is buying it. So, when you look ahead at having the first 13 ships, so the one that's already and then the 12 additional, what's the overall impact just from those on the emissions profile of MERSC?
1: I mean, our total scope one emissions from shipping is around 34 million tons. Uh, so, quite sizable, actually 0.1% of the global CO2 emissions from these 13 vessels we will actually see a reduction in around 1.5 million tons of CO2 and it's partly because we bring in ships that run on methanol but it's also because we take out old ships that were really inefficient so we have this uh, combined uh, effect you can say of replacing old tonnage bringing in new tonnage that runs on methanol so it does actually have a sizable impact also because of the size of the ships but there's still of course much more to go i mean we ha- we have more than 700 container ships and and these 13 is just the beginning
0: and the 2040 target uh, that that seems pretty aggressive just given the the longevity of the ships mm. that you already have in in your service so i mean that's that's a fairly rapid replacement of the existing old diesel fired ships going into a new dual sourced ship
1: well actually it's um it will follow that you can say the natural uh, replacement cycle uh, we will keep a ship in the fleet for around uh, 22 uh, 23 years uh, and since we haven't ordered ships for a couple of years then it actually works out quite well so we do not we don't have to to sort of force replace uh, we might do that because we we, we might have inefficient tonnage that is just not not good to have in the fleet anymore but but it actually works pretty well with a Well, you could say a, a ship life cycle.
0: The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Are you looking for more energy control, but worry about the upfront costs of a microgrid and renewables? We have you covered. Schneider Electric offers energy as a service for customers like you who spend $40,000 or more each month on energy. With energy as a service, you get customized solutions to help you meet goals for sustainability, efficiency, and cost control, including a microgrid and adjacent energy infrastructure. We also handle every step of the process and assume financial and operational risks. Upgraded electrical equipment, reduced emissions, predictable long-term pricing. Energy as a Service provides all of this and more. Visit www.se.com backslash US backslash E-A-A-S to find out if Energy as a Service is right for you. How do you think overall... The maritime shipping industry is doing from a decarbonization standpoint. I mean, it obviously helps having a company the size of Maersk really leading the initiative. But overall, across the industry, how do you think they're doing?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a very broad question. I think, uh, and and difficult to answer because it's it's a very it's a very mixed bag. I think there there are a, a, a couple of handful of companies that are really taking it seriously and are, and also investing in the green transition. Uh, but there is also uh, a lot of companies that either find it very hard, uh, or or haven't seen the necessity of of, uh, of going down this route yet. And I think that also points to to something uh, quite important, which is that uh, we're doing this now uh, as a voluntary measure uh, because we think it's the right thing to do, because we think that's where the future business lies. But not all shipping companies will get to that conclusion fast enough to to cut the emissions enough for shipping overall i think so uh, we will need regulation also to step in here and and create a level playing field and one of the things that we are also trying to achieve by by ordering these ships and try and building up methanol fuel production is to say this can be done it is not impossible it needs investments it needs Uh, technical capabilities. It needs a lot of partnerships and and so forth, but it can be done Uh, to send that uh, signal to the regulators that, that yes, you can regulate shipping on CO2 uh, because it is possible for us to switch to something greener.
0: Do you think going forward, I mean, given the the cost associated with the energy transition in, in the maritime space, do you think it will negatively impact the the smaller players in the industry? I mean, obviously, Maersk has the capital to be able to invest in this. Or is it one of those things that as the technology continues to develop, the costs will obviously come down, and then smaller companies that may not be able to afford taking a leap into the energy transition right now will then be able to follow suit, but they'll just be a little bit behind?
1: I, I think the way you describe it is is quite uh, realistic. I think it's completely fair that, that that the small players in the industry cannot uh, make the types of of investments uh, and and bets, uh, if you will, uh, that we do. But part of this is also to to have these fuels become become standard, so that it's easier to make that transition. It's a lot easier to take a decision to to build a a dual fuel methanol vessel when you can see there is green methanol in the market, and you can see that the infrastructure is at least building up. Then you know it's easier to 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 look at your customer demand which which might be on the increase uh, or, or on your investor base that are asking for this ah i can actually do this it's possible but we also actually talking to a lot of other companies and, and trying to uh, to help out and share some of the learnings that we have had so that it doesn't look yeah so so that others don't have to go through the same learnings necessarily and also the to, to, to make it clear that you know for example as i mentioned in the beginning some of the, the practicalities around uh, methanol, which are quite uh, promising, many people would not know about. And therefore they would shy away from it and say, ah, probably also technically challenging and, and all of that, so I'll just wait a little bit longer. We want to to help push the uh, push the development forward, of course.
0: And where also are you guys looking from an energy transition standpoint um, as it relates to to customers and suppliers, other initiatives, scope one, two, three missions, when you're talking to suppliers, what other types of things are you doing?
1: I'd say right now, our, our primary focus uh, in, the, in the shipping uh, business is to to really get our scope scope one emissions down because that is our where we primarily have uh, emissions or where we have the most of them. But you also need to think about uh, the steel that goes into building ships and the, that goes into building containers. We use quite a lot of steel. I mean, imagine again, these 13 ships that we just talked about. Actually, when they come out and running on uh, on green methanol, their primary I- impact will be from the production phase of those ships, because uh, all the steel and all the manufacturing of the ships is also something that is quite energy energy intense, of course. So, uh, so if we just look at the ships, well, we we of course need to address the fuel, but we also need to address uh, the whole production of the ship, the steel that goes into that, and uh, and also actually how the steel, when, when the ships are recycled, can be fully recycled and maybe used into new ships. So it's the full life cycle of the ship that we need to look at. And then our target for 2040 is really for the entire business. So it also means that, that we need to look at trucking, uh, rail transportation, uh, air freight, warehouses, terminals, uh, as, as other uh, big ticket items in the equation uh, towards neutrality
0: from a policy standpoint what are you seeing that's working what do you think can be done i mean obviously you've got the imo the self-regulatory that that started really with the sulfur reduction in the fuel but what are your thoughts on on the overall environment like i said are things going in the right direction i mean there's obviously a lot of initiatives there's a lot of talk but in terms of action what are you seeing that's helpful and can be done more
1: well i mean i think It's good that you mentioned uh, the sulfur regulation from the IMO because that is actually a very good example of how regulation done at the global level by the IMO can have a real impact on uh, air pollution. In this case, not related to climate change, but sulfur pollution. But still, it it was a very important piece of global regulation. On climate change and on CO2, I mean, we have for quite some time argued that the member states of the IMO are moving way too slow, um, and it's. Um, I think it's it's getting to a point where the IMO risks uh, becoming irrelevant as a regulatory body. Uh, we would hate to see that because it's the only global body for regulation on shipping, and we we want to see global regulation uh, on CO two. Uh, but it's important that that uh, that the IMO and the IMO member states move forward soon. We have pushed for a global carbon tax uh, of. per tonne, uh, because we think that will, in the short to medium term, level the playing field between the green fuels, uh, such as green methanol, and uh, the fossil fuels that that are used today. We think it makes sense that it is at least the same cost. Uh, Ideally, you would see the fossil fuels that pollute the planet being more expensive than the green fuels. But $150 per tonne would be a good start, and and just to put it into perspective, uh, that would be equal to around $500 per ton uh, of, uh, of fuel tax. And for a company like Maersk, that would lead to, uh, if we didn't have any green vessels, uh, an additional fuel cost of $5 billion per, uh, per year. So it would be a very sizable tax. And, and we also come across uh, peers in industry that uh, think it was a really bad idea <laughs> to propose uh, such a high tax. Uh, And and who don't really understand how we would voluntarily uh, take—I mean—propose to tax ourselves uh, five, six million dollars per year in in global CO two tax. But but we think it is necessary to to push this uh, forward. We can get started by uh, working closely with uh, with suppliers and uh, and selected customers that have a keen interest like we. But we will not get to the targets for the industry unless. Uh, there is a there is a global regulation that that is equal to all.
0: I was going to ask you how the the carbon tax proposal was received uh, on that because obviously would impact uh, some of the smaller shippers mm. uh, pretty significantly.
1: Yes, but also bigger shippers like us because we would we would uh, we ha- we are also the ones with the big fuel bills, right? So so yeah, but it, it but it has to be impactful. It's it's uh, it's the climate crisis we are trying to address here. So we also need to be willing to take measures that. That will actually make change happen because if it's not painful to pay those dollars then probably just uh, people will get going and the point of of having such a tax is not to collect it but for people to change the green
0: and speaking of the fuel when you look at your overall annual fuel usage how long do you think the transition is to where you're using 100 percent green renewable fuel
1: well when we get to to 2040, we will need to use 100% uh, green renewable fuel for our fleet. And at that point in time, we will probably, if we imagine it, it was all methanol, and it's probably going to be a mix, but if it was methanol, then that would be equal to around 20 million tons per year. But already in 2030, uh, we intend to transport around 25% of our cargo green, which actually means that by that time, we will need 5, 6 uh, million tons of methanol per year. And of course, a fleet that can burn that. So it's a, it's a fairly steep curve. Again, remembering that the global production of green methanol today is 30,000 tons, not millions, but thousands. So so there's a lot to do. But we think it's possible. Uh, we think it's quite realistic that towards the, the last part of this decade, we will be counting global production in, in millions of tons.
0: And so we talked about the challenges as it relates to the infrastructure and the production of methanol. What other obstacles do you see as you're trying to achieve the 2040 goal?
1: I think that I don't know if it's an obstacle, but I think that another aspect that is important to for me to mention is that there's still a lot of innovation going on in this space. And now we can see that methanol is ready for scale, and, and we can see how it can reduce our emissions. But uh, but we think there will be there will be other fuels as well. A fuel like ammonia we find quite promising, but there's just a lot of thing that needs to happen before it can uh, be deployed at scale. Uh, it is very toxic, and the engine is not uh, fully developed yet. So there will be there will be challenges like that. There will be innovation that leads to other opportunities, and there will be a lot of different challenges around uh, the scaling of the fuels, of course. From the technology point of view, if you just isolate to methanol, I think we are we are fairly close. I mean, we are we are. There's a lot of things that can still be optimized, but there's certainly enough to get started.
0: Besides some of the challenges. That, that we've talked about, I mean, you know, the infrastructure and, and things like that. And outside of just Maersk, do you see any other kind of challenges that maybe the smaller players in the maritime shipping industry could face as they're trying down the road of decarbonization?
1: I think that's a good question. And it's uh, maybe a little bit hard for me to answer because it could also be quite individual for, for those companies. But I think that what many companies are struggling with in the green transition, and that's actually probably overall, is to see what, what is the, the business case. How can we make the transition? How can we invest but without betting the farm? How can, we, how can we get into this and find a model where our customers pay enough and our banks understand it well enough so that we can get going? It is a different uh, business model in a way we used to i mean as of today we when we buy fossil fuels for our ships it's a very very transactional thing where we where we go in and buy spot and try to really squeeze the last dollar out of that and then then we sell the the, the freight to to our customers where now we need to enter a model where we are much more tied to both suppliers and customers because we depend on each other and if you cannot find a model that works for your company where you can see that that I can make the investments and still make my, make my business a healthy one, then you would be struggling. And I think it can be various different things. We, we think, I mean, we are on the firm opinion or belief that um, if we do not change in this direction, as an industry, we would be challenged. Because the model that we have in the world today, where you would produce goods, where it's the cheapest to produce typically, and then you connect it with global trade to where the consumption is. i mean if if we as an industry do not change our footprint footprint dramatically and reduce it dramatically, then we believe that might be socially unacceptable in in the next one, two decades. So that's a real existential risk for shipping. and And one of the things, apart from from our our, our, our you know a feeling of an obligation to to do what we can, one of the things that that has really made us step into this game in a, in a big way. And I think that when, when, when others uh, realize that uh, in the same way or begin to see that in the same way, they will want to go that way again uh, also. And, uh, and then it will be all about, yeah, finding the model that works. You know, we will need good agreements with suppliers. We will need good agreements with customers and then we will need regulation to follow, follow suit. And I think, especially for the smaller players, then clear regulation and a clear, clear outlook to regulation will help them a lot uh, in, in making those investments.
0: And that's why I mentioned earlier, I mean, it's great that a company the size of Maersk is leading the way in this because a lot of these challenges and hurdles, just given your size and capability and, and ability to invest in certain areas will help level that out. Uh, and a lot of people will be looking uh, at your lead to follow. So sometimes I ask for kind of the crystal ball look. So if you're even going beyond 2040 and let's say 2050, what do you think the shipping industry looks like at that point from a an emission standpoint, green fuel, all of the above?
1: I mean, I'm uh, I'm optimistic by nature, and also uh, just by the fact that I intend to be around to see 2050. What I would like to see by then, and what I hope to see by then, would be a fully decarbonized uh, shipping industry where we have have you know completed the energy transition. Uh, maybe there are small segments here and there, small pockets where uh, we are st- you're still running on diesel, but by and large, I would expect the entire shipping industry to be running green at that point. I think it would be a mix of fuels, a mix of technologies. Uh, you would see uh, probably still um, combustion engines, but also a lot of fuel cells. Being deployed at a very large scale, you'd see hydrogen, ammonia, methanol being deployed for different types of ships and different sizes that needs to go different distances. You you might even see nuclear uh, at that point also being deployed in shipping batteries and and a, and a host of other technologies such as kites uh, for example uh, and and other energy efficiency technologies also that that will help reduce the fuel bill. I mean. A kite on a container ship will not be able to 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 pull it over the Atlantic Ocean, but it can help pull a bit and thereby reduce the, the fuel consumption, for example. And I think we'll see a lot more of that. So it will be, uh, yeah, uh, fully decarbonized. And uh, I, I think we need to believe in that because uh, with the weather we've seen in the world just this year, with, with drought and floodings and fires and what have you, it should be clear to everyone that we need to act with urgency. And uh, if we do that, that will be the future we look into.
0: It really would be interesting to be able to see what, you know, I'm wondering would I be here 2050 myself, but it would be really interesting to see what the landscape looks like because like we talked about, it's going to be multiple technologies. Uh, some are going to be more applicable in certain areas and have cost efficiencies. And that's ultimately once you kind of get through the decarbonization effort, then it's going to be, okay, what's the cost efficiency of all these? And those are going to be the clear winners once, once you reach that stage and that it'll continue to evolve. But what, what does that mix look like of all the various technologies over, over the lifetime?
1: Yeah. I I, mean, I think it's, it's, it's impossible to say at this point. And, uh, but I think it's, it's absolutely certain that the era of, a uh, one size fits all in shipping when it comes to fuel that that's over because we've been having it a fairly easy time for the last hundred years, uh, using more or less the same fuel. We talked about the sulfur regulation but still it was the same engine afterwards so we changed the fuel reduced the sulfur but but we have been running on on marine diesel for the last uh, marine fuel oils for the last 100 years so i think we'll be looking into a future where the the shipping fleet will be running on on methanol ammonia hydrogen and all these other technologies that i mentioned probably have one or two fuels that we haven't even thought about you know maybe there will be breakthroughs in uh, direct air capture that lead to other types of electric fuels that are even smarter and maybe they can run in a in a, on an alcohol engine or in a diesel engine who knows or something else a lot can happen in 20 years but i'm not i'm not going to guess on the fuel mix because it's uh regardless of what we guess uh, i know it will be a, a wrong guess but i'm but i'm pretty sure that the fuels i mentioned will be part of the mix and then there will be others uh, beside them and uh, It'll be really interesting, and I think that those companies that are able to deal with that complexity will also be be the winners because it will be more complex, no doubt about it.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. It, it's a step in the right direction, uh, using what's what's available today. Uh, but it's going, like I said, the right direction. Well, Jacob, listen, I appreciate you coming on the show. A really interesting discussion, and and glad to see MERS taking a, a leadership role in decarbonization in the maritime space.
1: Well, thank you, and, uh, and it was a pleasure talking to you.